And the Eucharist, is, it is a ritual from a human perspective, because in the rite, we see bread and wine identified as the body and the blood of Christ. And so we take the body and blood of Christ into ourselves. Well, you are what you eat. So we are becoming the flesh and blood of Christ. So we're becoming the family of God by becoming the flesh and blood of his son. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am joined by a longtime friend and an esteemed uh, biblical scholar and theologian, uh, Dr. John Bergsma. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be with you. Excellent. And uh, Dr. Bergsma is, uh, what's your title at the St. Paul Center? I'm Vice for President for uh, Mission and Biblical Theology. At the St. Paul Center Saint Paul for Center. Biblical Theology, also a Professor of Theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Bergsma has uh, written many books on, uh, on the Bible, uh, He's written some popular books, the uh, New Testament Basics for Catholics, Stunned by Scripture, How the Bible Made Me Catholic, (laughs) and also just a wonderful resource uh, published by Ignatius Press, uh, an introduction to the- Catholic introduction to the Bible, Old Testament. Catholic introduction to the Old Testament, uh, which he and Brant Petrie authored the entire Old Testament. So (laughs) it's a wonderful book, and I know a lot of our students have uh, enjoyed it in their upper level classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So- you know, we're doing a series on the Eucharistic revival that's been called for by uh, the U.S. bishops and trying to grow in our understanding of the Eucharist and our devotion to the Eucharist. And so I thought, let's kind of just begin with some real, I want to focus today really on the Eucharist and Scripture. So maybe just to begin provocatively uh, with, you know, I think for a lot of people, maybe they would think that the the Eucharist really, you know, I mean, there are all these Bible churches. There are a lot of, pro, you know, like, is, don't you have the Bible and then the church added the Eucharist? So this is the question, right? Is the Eucharist biblical? <laughs> is the Eucharist biblical? Well, the short answer is uh, the Eucharist is what the entire Bible points towards. The, wow. The Eucharist mm-hmm. is the culmination of of scripture. Uh, Everything builds up to this great moment where Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant consisting of my blood. Mm -hmm. And uh, really, you know, understanding that verse, that's Luke 22, 20, understanding the significance of our Lord saying, this cup, which is the Eucharistic cup, is the new covenant in my blood, which means consisting of my blood. And that's his sacramental blood, of course, in the cup. It's not his physical blood. Didn't cut open a vein and pour mm-hmm. it in there. It's it's wine that still has the accidents of wine, still looks and tastes like wine, but it's actually the substance of his blood now. He says that's the new covenant. And then if you know your Bible, you know there's this whole series of covenants beginning with Adam and Noah and Abraham, Moses, so on each of which is, uh, has been broken, but the promise of the prophets was a new and eternal one would come. And Jesus says, well, this is the Eucharist. So, wow. yeah, so it's, it's the culmination of the whole It's the culmination, message. right? So in a way, the, uh, the, the, the it's more that the Bible is Eucharistic. Right. Maybe we would put it that way. Right. Now, I think also maybe, and maybe sometimes Catholics uh, may not even pay attention if they happen to you know be at Mass and realizing that those key words of consecration that happen, right? This, take this, all of you, eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given for you. Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, 
which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory. Right, right at the heart yeah. of that is not only uh, the saying of Jesus Christ, right, but that that is that is right from the Bible, right? We have that yeah. in First Corinthians. We have that same expression in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. Uh, so maybe you know. So again, it's that sense that right, right in the heart of the Mass is the Bible, and right at the heart of it is this new and eternal covenant, and so. One of the things I was really hoping for you to do, and I just love the way you answered that question, is you kind of just began to say that, wait a second, to understand what it means to say that, right, the Eucharist is Jesus' reality as instituting and passing on the new and eternal covenant. Just could you say a little bit about what the covenant is, and then maybe, you know, we could begin to kind of walk. You mentioned it's, it fulfills the covenants with Adam and Abraham and Moses and David, and so why don't we do a little walk through scripture together? Yeah, absolutely. So just begin maybe, I think, but the yeah. idea of covenants probably, I think people yeah, hear it. Yeah, people hear it. Yeah, I mean, we hear it every don't know mass. What it means. Yeah. And if Gallup Poll put pollsters at the back of Catholic churches and interviewed everybody going out and saying, hey, what's a covenant? People would scratch their heads. I would say like less than 5% could give an adequate definition of what a covenant is. Mm-hmm. Even though we all know that the Eucharist is a source and summit of our Christian faith, mm-hmm. both the Bible and the liturgy call it a covenant, and we have no clue what a covenant is and we can't define it. So let me give you a quick definition. A covenant is the extension of kinship by oath. Mm. Okay, so it's a way of swearing What's someone. What's kinship? Maybe kinship for is family. Okay. Right, right. Kinship is family, right? Mm-hmm. So he's kin to me. Maybe that's an older term. I don't know. Yeah. I live in Appalachia and we use it up there, maybe in the modern world outside of uh, the, holl- oh, the hollers of the of the Appalachians. People don't understand that. But but yeah, yeah. Uh, extension of kinship. I also uh, let's put it another way the extension of family by oh, so a way of swearing someone into your family. You might ask, yeah. well, why does God want to deal with us by covenants? And it's because by our nature, we're creatures sharing that with the other animals, etc. God is not content for us to remain creatures. He wants to elevate us to children. Mm. He elevates mm-hmm. us to sons and daughters. And so he extends to us his covenant. Ultimately, in like the, you know, the, the, the deep nature of reality, the covenant is the gift of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that confers on us or that makes us like God shares with us the divine nature so we can really be sons and daughters. So the covenant but, then becomes really, in a way, is the oath sworn by God that mm-hmm. adopts us as his children. So people may yeah. not be familiar with that term covenant, but they, I think at least a lot of people would be familiar with the idea that we're called to become children, children of, of God, God. Right. Uh, that God is Although not only unique a to Christian faith. Interesting. Other world religions don't teach this. It's blasphemy in Islam to be a child of God. It's mm-hmm. a metaphor in Judaism. It's senseless in Buddhism because mm-hmm. don't even believe necessarily believe in a God in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And so other world religions do not teach divine childhood. We tend to overgeneralize to all other world religions based on our Christian experience. Think, oh yeah, everybody says that we're children of God. No, they don't. Okay, that's unique, and especially Mm -hmm. to Catholic faith, because even in Protestantism, being a child of God is often reduced to a metaphor similar to Judaism. Mm. But because we believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and His real activity in baptism, see, former Protestant, I didn't think baptism did anything to you. 
But as Catholics, yes, it does something to you. It gives you the Holy Spirit. It makes you a child of God. Before that, you were potentially a child. Now you're actually a child. Okay? So we believe in the real participation of believers in God's nature. So it's not just word language or, you know, hot religious rhetoric, but uh, we're really changed, okay? In a way analogous to what happens with the transubstantiation of the Eucharist, you know, bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Not exactly like that, but analogously, when we're baptized, we become children of God. We're really not the same thing anymore. Mm -hmm. We're not the same being anymore. So because of the real presence in the Eucharist, because of the real activity of the Holy Spirit in baptism, we become really Really children of of God. God. And uh, there's that beautiful line, I think it's what, uh, 1 John uh, 3, 2, right? Beloved. Uh, we are called children of God, and see what so love the Father's given us that yes. we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Yeah. You know? Right, and that really is the good yeah. news that when we see the world, when we see our own sins, when we see, I don't know, the chaos of just you know around the globe, the chaos around the centuries, uh, the chaos in a way across the eons, even yeah. you know, just that the, but we can not only recognize that there's a creator that is intelligent and good or has some source for things, but actually, right, this creator that wants us to call him father. I love the fact that one of the few um, Aramaic, uh, there are only a handful of Aramaic sayings of Jesus that got uh, reported. And I think one of the only ones that shows up both in the Gospels and in Paul is Abba. Abba, Father, Papa, this intimate term of relationship. And that... that's really hopeful. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so it, that's it really, beautiful. so that sense of like defending then the reality of the Eucharist is not, and I put it, it's not just trying to be right, so to speak, for the sake of right. being right, but it's it's the deepest meaning of our life. Exactly. Is that we can truly call God Father, right, in Christ, right. Right. or through Christ in the Holy Spirit, and truly become his children, both right. in this life and in the yeah, life to yeah, come. Yeah. Wow. And, and the Eucharist is such, you know, it is a ritual from a human perspective, mm-hmm. not just a ritual, right? It's an act of God, mm. but it's, it's a ritual, but the yeah. ritual perfectly illustrates the reality that's actually taking place. Because in the right, we see bread and wine identified as the body and the blood of Christ. And so we take the body and blood of Christ into ourselves. Well, you are what you eat. So we are becoming the flesh and blood of Christ. That's, you know, we're becoming the family, right? You know, because if you share, who shares my flesh and blood? It's my children, right? Um, Or possibly my siblings, you know? So, uh, So we're becoming the family of God by becoming the flesh and blood of his son. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is, again, not just a you know, fantasy world. This is not just you know, a Disneyland weekend trip where we imagine that we're in some kind of alternate reality. No, this is actually more real mm-hmm. than what's going on in social media, than what's going on in the newspapers. This is, a, this is the ground of reality, mm-hmm. is that in, in baptism, in the Eucharist, we're really becoming children yeah. of God, entering this intimate relationship with him, which God has always wanted for us from all eternity. Yeah, I love that, that expression, too, that you just mentioned of that, um, right? My own flesh and blood, mm-hmm. right? We, you know, we hear that, we use that, we see it in literature, we see it in, you know, this is, this is my own flesh and blood. And in a way, this is what, when we think about the, the Eucharist being the, the body and blood, the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, then right. when we receive that, then in a way, God is saying to us, you are my own flesh right. and blood. We receive in a way that 
I, I always kind of love the image, uh, you know, that when if, if we've had a, like, you know, you know, friends that maybe been in car accidents or friends that have done other things, all of a sudden they get blood transfusions. They're, they're right. sick. They don't have enough blood to live, but they get this blood transfusion and they live. And in a way, I think all of us as human beings, right, we were meant to kind of live mm-hmm. in the divine image, in the divine right. sonship, but we lost that. And so what we need is to be, right, not only adopted in terms of being like, externally brought in, but we need to be internally renewed with the very blood of Jesus, the blood of the sun pumping in our veins. Mm -hmm, mm, Uh, The life is in the blood. Yeah. So, well, that's wonderful. So let's, uh, you know, could you just uh, say just a a word or two for maybe some uh, listeners who uh, aren't familiar uh, with, you know, you or your story? Just, you know, in a, in a, in a minute or two, uh, not, not too much, but just a little bit of, you know, your background, uh, where you came from, how you started studying the Bible and sure. you know, how you became a Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my dad was an, a U.S. Navy chaplain and I wanted to follow in his footsteps and okay. went to our denominational school, which is in West Michigan and did the whole pre-seminary and seminary track yeah. and served a church in West Michigan. Then decided to go on for an advanced degree in scripture and got accepted at University of Notre Dame. That's where we met. Yes. <laughs> you play a big part of this story, uh, as, uh, as some folks will know. And uh, so, yeah, I went to, went to the University of Notre Dame, met you, met some other people. We started entering, uh, you know, theological conversations. And uh, I was very impressed where you had basically uh, beat me at uh, biblical martial arts. And I kept getting slammed to the mat. In biblical, uh, biblical apologetics yeah. by by a Catholic, and uh, so, uh, but eventually, um, you know, you got me to read the uh, the Apostolic Fathers, the earliest of the Church Fathers, and that was really the tipping point as I began to, to recognize that the early Church was authentically Catholic. You know, Ignatius of Antioch's uh, testimony to the real presence at the end of. Uh, uh, his letter to the Smyrnians, mm-hmm. chapter six and seven, where he says, where he warns early Christians, stay away from anyone who refuses to confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised for our salvation. And um, seeing that early testimony only 10 years after the death of the Apostle John to the real presence, you know, the, the, the Eucharist is the flesh of Jesus, which has suffered and which has been raised. Um, made me realize that that was the authentic teaching of the church and that Protestantism had later departed from that. And so I wanted to be reunited to authentic early Christianity, and that meant joining the Catholic Church. So that happened in 2001, and then a few years later, uh, I moved to uh, Steubenville to work with Dr. Scott Hahn uh, for a year, and then uh, got hired at the university while I was down there. So I've been teaching at Franciscan University since 2004. Wow. Well, what a blessing yeah, uh, for indeed. all those students to be able to learn from you. And and uh, what a gift you've been to Catholic uh, biblical theology and biblical scholarship. Uh, and I think, um, and also to just the, you know, uh, trying to disseminate this great wisdom of the church also in all varieties, writing both scholarly articles, popular books, as well as giving talks, uh, you know, many parishes, and I just think that anyway, it's such a good it's it's such a good day, and uh, we, we should definitely give thanks to God uh, for using uh, you know two knuckleheads uh, to occasionally <laughs> do some good in the world. Indeed. Uh, so maybe let's let's then go back. Let's go back to the beginning, and let's sure. kind of let let's let's go through some of those covenants that you were talking about. We know covenants now are about kind of sworn oaths that create kinship, that create family bonds, that kind of make, not only adopt us and make us to be children of God, 
Let's go back to Adam. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So there's a lot we could say about Adam, but let's keep it super simple. Mm-hmm. Um, in the ancient world, uh, you f- you swore an oath by repeating a, a gesture or a, or a statement seven times in ancient Israel. And wow. we see that in the seven days of creation. This is God forming an oath between himself and the world. Mm. Well, an oath makes a covenant. So he's swearing creation into a family relationship with himself where uh, Adam and Eve are the representative of the rest of creation. They're his son and daughter and they, they mediate yeah. his love for the rest of creation. Mm-hmm. So Adam and Eve are in this original covenant relationship where they're a child of God. This language of image and likeness made in the image and likeness, that's actually the language of sonship. If you compare Genesis one twenty six with Genesis five, three, you know, when Seth is born, he said to be in the image and likeness of Adam, his father. So you take that back and you realize, oh, Adam being in the image likeness of God means that God is his father by covenant. And that's what, of course, look at the last verse of Luke 3, identifies Adam as the son of God. So you got this original Mm -hmm. filial covenant broken by sin. Things degenerate. God starts history over again with Mm -hmm. Noah and the flood, washes everything clean, starts over with the most righteous man, extends a covenant to him. In uh, Genesis, uh, at the end of Genesis 8 into Genesis 9. So sonship is restored. Not everything's perfect. There's been some damage to nature, but nonetheless, sonship restored. But then Noah sins, getting drunk and messing things up with his family. Things again degenerate. Mm-hmm. Humanity rebels against God at the Tower of Babel. He confuses their languages, but then everything's alienation. They're alienated from each other. They don't understand each other. They're alienated from God. So what's God going to do? Chooses Abraham to, as it were, infiltrate the human family. He's going to start with Abraham and then bless Abraham. And from Abraham, blessing is going to go to all the nations. It already says that in Genesis 12, verse 3. Mm-hmm. In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Abraham's our program for restoring blessing. God makes a covenant with him in stages, ultimately tests his faith by asking him to offer Isaac, his only begotten son, which Abraham is willing to do. God, of course, calls off that sacrifice, but that was kind of a dry run mm. of Calvary, an image of Calvary. And when yes. when Abraham shows that love towards God, such that God has for us, willing to even part with a beloved son, God bestows on Abraham the privilege of being the instrument and the father for um, the eventual blessing of, of the nations through his descendants. In Gen- Genesis twenty two fifteen through 18, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Mm-hmm. God swears an oath to Abraham. Of course, oath forms a covenant, forms a family bond. Family bond with Abraham, all the nations are going to be blessed. Okay, so what do we got to do? Well, we got to you know, we got to work with Abraham's descendants. So God brings Abraham's descendants down to Egypt. They, uh, they become great and populous when they're large enough to become a great nation, which is what God promised to Abraham. God sends a savior, Moses, who brings them out to Sinai, gives them the law, which is another thing they need to be formed into a great nation, as was promised to Abraham. And then under Joshua, they enter into the land, but they can't keep God's law. Mm-hmm. They keep having ups and downs until finally another savior figure comes, David, who uniquely is filled with God's spirit, which we really haven't seen since Adam. Remember how Adam had the breath of life breathed into his nostrils when he was mm-hmm. made in Genesis 2. Well, in 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed by the prophet Samuel as king over the people. And when that anointing oil hits him, the spirit rushes upon him from that day forward. He's another spirit-filled man. He's a spirit-filled king like 
like Adam was supposed to be. So kind of this, you know, this new chapter, a new leaf in the history of God's people where we get this spirit-filled king. And God makes a promise to David, uh, a covenant with David. You're you're, going to be my son and your descendants are going to be my son and you're going to rule over all the nations forever uh, and you're going to build my house. And that works well for a couple generations through Solomon. But then after Solomon, David's sons are rascals. And so things Uh decline Mm -hmm. until ultimately the people of God get kicked out of their land, just like Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And so what's going to happen at this point? It looks like everything has failed. Well, then the prophets come and say, no, God's going to bring a new covenant. And this new covenant is going to restore all the promises and the good things that were promised to David. Mm-hmm. And that brings us up to the new, the new covenant and the New Testament, I should say. And when, when Jesus comes onto the scenes of the Gospels, Matthew begins his Gospel saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of is a phrase from Genesis 5 verse 1, which says this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. So Matthew's setting up a parallel between Adam and Jesus. This is the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. Mm. Jews reading that would be expecting Adam to drop at the end of the verse. Uh Instead, Jesus Christ drops. So Jesus is the new Adam. So he's new Adam. He's also son of David, son of Abraham. That basically means he's the one to fulfill all those covenants that kind of flopped and left all their meaning on the on the field. Uh, Jesus is going to pick up that meaning, mm-hmm. fulfill it, and then he does that through his whole ministry, but climaxing at, in Passion Week, where in two steps he makes the new covenant, first in the upper room, speaking over the Eucharistic cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which means consisting of my blood. So you are going to take this and you're going to become my flesh and blood. You're going to become my family, which is what covenant's all about, becoming family of God. And then what he affects by sacrament in the upper room, he confirms by the physical gift of his body on the cross a few days later. And there on the cross, we see our Lord's side opened up, John 19, 34, blood and water pouring forth from his side in the Gospel of John. Blood is sign of Eucharist, water sign of baptism. This is the river of, sac- of the sacraments. The sacraments are a river through space and time, which flows through the whole world and carries the Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit is what we've been lacking since Adam lost the Holy Spirit in the garden. Yeah. We need, like Adam, to have the breath of life breathe into our nostrils. Thanks be to God, we can get that breath of life breathe into our nostrils by partaking of the sacraments, which are available all through the world. Catholic parishes everywhere. Every Catholic parish is a is a little Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Now, there's many Edens on every continent. They say over 90% of the human family is within an hour's drive of the nearest Catholic parish, so everybody can get to Eden. Everybody can drink from the river of life and, the tr- and eat from the tree of life, which are in the garden, and receive the Holy Spirit and become, once again, sons and daughters of God, like Adam and Eve were in the garden. We've come full circle, and that's, that's the pattern, and that's why the Eucharist is the culmination of the entire Bible. Wow. Um, I, I'm glad we recorded that. I, that was that was an amazing, I think, eight-minute uh, <laughs> walk through all the key covenants and all the, the key moments in salvation history. And and it's interesting. Once It's like once you see that, you can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. Like once you see that that's what Jesus is doing in the new covenant, you see he is the Makes new Adam, the new Abraham, the new Moses, the new 
David, and he's restoring us. And again, not just to be David, which is why he is the Messiah, but he's more than the Davidic Messiah. He's all that the Davidic Messiah was, but so much more because his kingdom, right, will be an eternal kingdom. Mm -hmm. His peace that he brings will not just be an earthly peace, which is always fragile and and often, even even David, right, can't build the temple because, of course, he had to establish peace by blood. Yeah. Right? Now, not his own blood, but the right, blood of others and, and, yeah. uh, and right, all these different ways. And yet that's exactly what, right. What, 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 what happens in, mm-hmm. in, in the new covenant in mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, this gift of the Holy spirit, which does bring us back to Eden. Let's uh, let's take a quick pause. Uh, we'll take a little break. And then when we come back, uh, let's, let's, let's go back and kind of unpack a few of those moments. Definitely. And uh, I look forward to that. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the show, and I'm here with a, a friend and a brilliant biblical scholar, theologian, Catholic uh, theologian, John Bergsma, who's uh, the Vice President for Mission and Outreach at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and Professor of Theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, and uh, Dr. Bergsma, uh, for those who uh, have been uh, listening, has you know written many books on uh, biblical theology and kind of both unfolding uh, the meaning and understanding of the Bible uh, in in a theological uh, manner, and so we were just talking about how, right, when this language of the new covenant, which Christ instantiates, fulfills all of the various stages throughout the entire of salvation history, throughout the entire Old Testament, and in a way, right, the new covenant, which is the New Testament, in a way, is simply that reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, that Christ has done that. And that I loved the way you described that, therefore, now in the new covenant, we have restored to us not only the forgiveness of sins, but the restoration of the Holy Spirit, right? which yeah. is the means for the forgiveness of sins. And when we receive the Spirit of God, when we receive the Spirit of the Son, we become sons. And I yeah. love that image of right, the tabernacle as Eden, mm-hmm. right? That place yes. where God dwells right. with his creation. Right, yes. In the very Eucharistic elements, and that when we, uh, you know, through our, of course, have you know, repenting of our sins and believing and trusting in God's promises, right, uh, that we, in a way, are restored to that right relationship. But I know when I teach, I think students or talk to people, I think a lot of people have a lot of questions about Genesis, right? Right, Genesis one, the seven days of creation, Genesis two, Adam and Eve, Genesis three, the fall, Genesis four, Cain and Abel. Uh, uh, it's interesting. I think that um, you know, uh, Jordan Peterson, I uh, did some talks on uh, the Genesis stories, and I, I, anyway, I looked at one time on YouTube. I think over like twelve million people have watched it, oh which gosh. shows how. Like this is kind of like a fascinating question for people. I think like even people who may not know a lot about the Old Testament, they know the stories of Genesis and I think often sometimes find them maybe a bit troubling. And yet you've kind of uh, begun to unfold maybe a way that we might be able to not only not have them trouble us, but perhaps find consolation in them. 
Indeed. You know, for me, that when, when you were talking about the sense of repeating something seven times, that sense of saying it was good, and yeah. it was good, and it was good, and it was good, right? And it, right. Was, and it was very good. Yeah. Like, I don't, I mean, a lot of it is when we look at creation, it doesn't look very good, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier. So right. this, yeah. so could you just talk a little bit more about the goodness of creation as something that in a way that is revealed to us, that God promises to us, not only in scripture, but also, as you mentioned, through like this sworn oath promise of the covenant? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the what what we see happening in the creation story of course is is god bringing order to that which he's called into being and uh and building a temple you know in, in the ancient world this is a common concept that the uh the creation is is somehow the temple built for the worship of the gods of course the gods is a mistake there's just one god mm-hmm. but when we read the seven days of creation you know in the first 3 days god is forming everything. He creates the realm of time with the day and the night in the first day. He creates the great spaces with the sky and the sea, you know, space is created. And then on the third day, he creates a habitat. So everything's Mm -hmm. formed after three Mm -hmm. days, but it's not filled. And then in the remaining days, he fills these different aspects fills the day and night with the sun and the moon and the stars. He fills the sea and the sky with the birds and the fish. He fills the habitat with the animals and man. So you see there's a logic to what's going on there. And and in those six days, he's building up this cosmos as a temple, and it culminates in the seventh day, which is the day of worship, because that was what everything was ordered to, was, mm-hmm. was worship. Is worship for the aggrandizement of God? Well, partly, but uh, but God doesn't need his creation to aggrandize him. What worship is at, at its heart is communion between the creation and the creator, um, and, and more so between his sons and daughters and himself. Mm-hmm. So worship is family time, as mm-hmm. it were. It, it's time to, to enjoy each other's presence as children and as father. And that's what all of creation is ordered to. So that's a deeper meaning of the creation story. It's not primarily about chronologically how long did these things come mm-hmm. about, but, but explaining to us what the purpose was for creation. Yeah. It was a temple for the worship of God. Mm-hmm. And then within that uh, temple, mankind are were, were placed there to function as priests. So Adam is placed in the garden to work and to guard the garden in Genesis 2.15. People don't realize it, but that's priestly terminology. Later in the book of Numbers, the priests are instructed to work the work and guard the guardianship in the tabernacle. And that meant working the work was celebrating the liturgy. Guarding the guardianship was keeping the sanctuary clean. Adam was supposed to do that. He was the first priest. Uh, Eve joins him in that role. And yet when we get to Genesis 3 and the fall, we find out that this unclean animal, the serpent, has gotten into the garden. Who has not been doing his guard duty? Uh, it's Adam. Mm. And so he fails to perform his priestly duty of guarding that temple sanctuary of the Garden of Eden. And why does he fail to do that? Probably out of fear of suffering, fear of what combat with this lethal mm. creature mm. might mean to him. And so he he fails the responsibility to defend his bride and to defend the sanctuary against the threat of evil probably out of fear of death and suffering that might be involved in contesting with that uh, that serpent. And this brings in why Christ undoes and how Christ undoes Adam, because uh, our Lord confronts uh, the evil of the serpent. It's the image of Satan. 
and accepts the suffering and death in order to defend his bride. Mm-hmm. And his bride is also his temple. It is the church. And so this is a deeper meaning. I know we're going through, through that quickly, yeah. but this is the deeper meaning of, of uh, sure. salvation. And, and yeah. maybe if we go back just a little bit to get unpacking that sense of, in a way, because we live in a fallen world, Right. Uh, we don't experience the the, the, the full the goodness worldness, of creation. Yeah, the, the whole world as a temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have to kind of somewhat set aside temples. There was right. a temple in Israel. There was a tabernacle in uh, with Israel uh, as they were wandering in the Through desert well, yeah. and eventually coming forward. And and even today we have well tabernacles and, and yeah. churches, and we know that somehow God is everywhere, but we also know God is more there. Like right. God is definitely more in the Eucharist, makes his right? Presence felt, yeah, and, and experienced. And so, but I think if we go back, then, so in some ways, when we think about this idea of like God creating the world for worship, we almost might have like an inadequate, or we have a limited understanding of worship. And you were talking about the idea of guarding and keeping. It, it occurs to me in some ways. It's also interesting. Right in the middle of that, you have Adam and Eve, so to speak, getting married. Yeah, <laughs> basically, right in Genesis two, it's a little wedding yeah. ceremony. They get right. married. The man leaves his right father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Right, right? Uh, they become one flesh, and that right. one flesh becomes more flesh right. as the flesh and blood becomes multiplied, uh, yeah. and they also have the capacity then to use their reason and their will to order creation right right so if we take then these realities of well basically work and family life yeah work and family life are almost the matter of worship indeed right yeah. where in genesis we could actually right. it, you you like that we would take all of the the work of the day and the and our family life our relationships right and all of those would become in a way the matter for our yeah. worship of god so there would be, I guess, what I say. There, there, there's no separation in yes. a way between like the secular and the sacred. Or, I mean, I don't know how to put it. It's not like right. every, yeah. every yeah. home yeah. would yeah. be a tabernacle in Indeed. in 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 this, you know, created as we were created with this order. Yeah. Uh, and so now we, in a way, need to recover that. And I think it's interesting. People sometimes even like, you know, you sometimes get that there's like, well, I mean, like, hey, I. I I, I commune with God in nature. Um, you know, I like I, I I feel more aware of God's presence on a long walk uh, than at church, and 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 of course to a certain extent, right? It's more pleasant often to be by yourself alone in the mountains <laughs> right. than with a bunch of other people right. and uh, all those sorts of things. But but I think like in a way there is kind of a hunger and a thirst for the fact that we should be able to walk with God everywhere. Yeah, but maybe. If you could talk a little bit more about how do we somehow recognize in a way today that all of our family life, our work, our recreation can somehow be means of dwelling yeah. with God, right. of walking with God. And yet somehow that's only made possible because of, and it's not just like because of the Eucharist, but it's because that the Eucharist is the entire life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How is it that yeah, right yeah, that, yeah. that communion yeah. with God that we kind of seek? Uh, you know, people like Wordsworth thought they would have it when they would be walking <laughs> out and seeing a beautiful sunset or right. seeing a little child, and and and, and maybe you know there are echoes of that that are not right. wrong. No, uh, but I don't know. You, you just unpack that a little. Yeah, bit for yeah. Us. Well, like a, you know, I like to tell my students: look, when you look at Genesis two fifteen again, Adam is placed in the garden. Even that term "placing." is an ancient term that was used for placing the image of a deity 
in an ancient temple. You know, they make a sculpture of Zeus oh, and then wow. place it in the mm -hmm. temple. So word studies have been done that like point out it's the same same verbal form. So in, in the true religion, you know, the God is not you know, imaged by something of silver and gold, but in the human being. We are made in the image and likeness of God, yeah. which also refers to our, our divine sonship and daughterhood. You know, so anyway, he's placed in the garden. And then furthermore, uh, to work and to guard, as I mentioned before, that's priestly terminology. Those verbs are used together in the Old Testament only when describing the duties of the priest. So people say, well, you know, what did, what, did, what was Adam actually supposed to do in the garden? You know, what, you know, uh, wasn't he supposed to tend the plants and so on? And yes, of course, you know, he's supposed to care for the garden, but there was no division mm. in Adam's life between his work and his worship. The two were one. Mm. There was no profanation of his labor. Mm -hmm. Labor and liturgy, work and worship were completely unified. And what splits work from worship, labor from liturgy is sin. And so when he sins, mm -hmm. then that profanes his labor and, and then there is his division. But what Christ has come to do, among many other things, is to restore, to reintegrate. And so um, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit enables us to sanctify the work of our hands. It enables us to, to perform in a holy way and, and to perform as an act of worship and as an act of sacrifice, changing diapers, writing checks, doing the laundry, you know, managing the household, in my case, doing my teaching, or for others, it's you know, at the, at the contracting site, you know, at the building site or at the bank or wherever it may be, whatever mm -hmm. our labor is, provided our labor is honest and that it's ethical, it can be raised to a higher level. It can be infused with God's presence and it can be made a holy sacrifice because in Christ that we are reintegrated like Adam was. And yeah, so when we think, yeah, yeah. so when we think a little bit about creation being good, we're not just right. looking outside. Yeah. That actually means somehow our very created lives are good. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, disfigured by sin, yes, but but capable of being restored. Right. So, right, my work, my family life. Uh, and it's it's beautiful to see that that's right there in a way in the heart of the Eucharist and in the heart of, you know, Genesis. Indeed. Uh, right, right, this good news. And, uh, you know, there's a great um, 20th century saint, San Jose Maria Escriva, right, who, who emphasized that sense that we could have that unity of life, uh -huh. right, that we could live and we could offer our work and our family life, with our, our priestly our soul, life, with a priestly soul being yeah, right, contemplatives in the midst of the world. And yeah. anyways, I just think that's really just a <laughs> beautiful, is, you know, image and, uh, and, 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 and how meaningful. Day, that, oh, yeah. that passage from Genesis is read on his feast day. Wow. You know, Adam was placed in the garden to work and to guard and just mm -hmm. work so beautifully with his whole uh, yeah. uh, understanding of the ability to sanctify daily life. Mm -hmm. and, and we got to avoid as, as Christians, as Catholics, Catholics, you got to avoid like putting a division between six days of the week and then the day of worship, you know, as if, you know, we're involved in all this profane, sinful, dirty stuff, you know, for six days. And then we kind of clean up and go to church and that's holy time. And then, mm -hmm. and then we go back to the muck, mm -hmm. you know, no, uh, we're called as kings, priests, and prophets to be re-energized and to have the Holy Spirit renewed in us. Yeah 
through, uh, through worship, through the liturgy, through the Eucharist, and then go back to our daily lives empowered to sanctify it, empowered to spread the garden. A lot of biblical theologians think that Adam and Eve's original mission was to take that beautifully well-ordered well Garden of Eden and expand it until the whole earth was yeah. one big garden. Yeah. Right. And fill and multiply. Fill that. and multiply, yeah. indeed. And in a, in a sense, we can see how the church has begun to do that because, as I said, every Catholic mm-hmm. sanctuary is a little Eden that are spread on every continent yeah. uh, all through. And so we've we begun to garden up you know, the earth, but to the degree that we as Catholics bring the light of our faith to our banking, our teaching, uh, our contracting, and whatever it might be, we're bringing the peace of the garden. You know, we're, we're, we're mm-hmm. making God's, we're, we're bringing God's creation to a higher level of order uh, where it leads to human flourishing and it leads to, you know, fraternity among God's children who are, because we're all God's children, at least potentially, you know, we yeah. all have that potential mm-hmm. because we're the image of God. Even those who have not received baptism or the potential to become child of God. So we always have to treat them as children of God so they be invited in and receive the fullness of, of divine filiation through receiving the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and and when we think about it like that, then the Eucharist doesn't become one other thing in our life. It becomes right the source and summit Essential. of the Christian life because Indeed. we receive our strength from it. From it and therefore can do our work and uh-huh. our and our friendships and our recreation. And then we can take all of that and offer it back to God through the mm-hmm. Eucharist. Now, just one other thing I really wanted to, you mentioned a little bit how Adam somehow may have fallen, at least in part through an unwillingness to suffer. And we yeah. certainly see Jesus as the new Adam who takes on suffering. You know, and, and, you, and you spoke about the prophets speaking of a new kingdom, right? A new covenant, yes. um, that there would be a restoration of peace, a covenant of peace, yeah. Uh, there'd be right a mountain where we'd worship God, and right the lion would lie down with the lamb, and all sorts of you know right. peace. There'd be lots of food. I mean, all all right. these sorts of beautiful images. And I know you didn't skip over this, but there is, of course, the the unpleasant part of Isaiah's prophecies <laughs> that I think some right. people are familiar with. Right, Isaiah fifty two yeah. and fifty three, the suffering servant. Right. Uh, he has, I think, four prophecies of this Messiah, this figure who will come to save, but he will be a servant. You know, my spirit will rest upon him, you know, all these different things. But there's an element of suffering that shows up, even right right in Isaiah 53, right? By his wounds, we are healed. That gets, so could you just say a little bit more about, right? Why suffering? Why Why is somehow suffering part of the prophecy Right of the restoration of Eden. Why does it? Why does it have to go through the path of suffering? Maybe both a little bit in Isaiah, and then of course, obviously, as we, yeah, as 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 we kind of, it's so obvious in front of us. We almost don't even, you know, we, we often just walk by a crucifix and don't even kind of startle with the amount of immense suffering that Christ went through for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, on a deep level, we have to understand suffering is the purification of love. Okay. Love only reveals itself truly as love when it suffers, because until suffering is involved, one can always suppose that the one who uh, is presumed to love is in, in it for some kind of ulterior motive, like maybe they're just enjoying this and so on. Mm-hmm. But when, when you actually suffer for love, uh, when there's no benefit to you uh, for the act of love, it becomes apparent to all and even to ourselves 
that we actually are in love because we're not doing this for our self-benefit. So, you know, somebody, somebody once said that um, in this world, suffering without love is intolerable, but love without suffering is impossible, okay? Because, again, mm-hmm. love never is fully revealed as love until it suffers. So this is on a deep level. And then in the, in the story of salvation, we see with Adam this unwillingness to suffer in order to defend his bride and the sanctuary. And that creates the conditions of possibility for uh, the fall into sin in Genesis 3. And then throughout salvation history, various other figures as well uh, refuse to suffer um, in order to maintain that relationship with God, and they capitulate in various ways to their pleasures or their comfort and so on. And this is all this is our tendency as well. We don't yeah. want to suffer mm-hmm. in order to maintain our relationship with God. We have a tendency towards comfort, pleasure, etc. So getting to Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies a new David, a new Adam, who's going to come, this servant to the Lord, who's going to embrace the suffering that was, say, avoided by Adam, avoided by Solomon, these other great leaders of God's people through salvation history. We see that in Isaiah 50. We see it in Isaiah 53 as well. So he is going to embrace that suffering. He is going to be like Isaac, uh, the son of Abraham, who willingly laid himself down on the altar and became not just priest, but also victim in that priestly act. And that's a, that's another dimension of Isaiah 53, is the suffering servant who's described there is very much a priestly figure mm-hmm. whose sacrifice is himself. You know? oh, okay. and, and you never wow. see that in Israel's liturgy until Christ comes, and he is the one. In the upper room, he is already, already saying this. When he says, this is my body, this is my blood, well, when body and blood are separated, they're only separated at death. So that already yeah. implies mm-hmm. his death, mm-hmm. which he's giving, giving for the nourishment of his disciples. Okay, So he's both priest and victim there in the upper room yeah. and likewise on the cross. Uh, wow, that's, uh, that's just uh, really amazing then because now you can kind of see like we have this whole sense of like work, family life, all that we do well, Right. All that we do, all of our works and our even our prayers, all of our efforts, all of that can go back to God through Indeed. the Eucharist. And yet also on the other side, not only what we do, but what we suffer. Right. Right. That all of our suffering, suffer. yeah. all of our brokenness, all of our, uh, yeah. the, the just really, you know, the, often the terrors and horrors of life. Yeah. Yeah. Those also find meaning because yeah. uh, those are in a way what we can you know, and, and, our love right and, and that in some ways goes back to that uh, you know that kind of simple thing that I think a lot of Catholics talk about right? just offering it up offering up our work and offering up our things but recognizing that we're not offering our suffering on our strength it's that we offer it with the same um, kind of we, we ask Christ in us to offer it for us right uh, I wanted to as, as, as we close I want to just ask you three questions uh, so uh, first, what's a book you've been reading? Uh, I've been working uh, through a book called uh, Through Wind and Waves, which is a book on uh, spiritual direction and what kind of qualities you need to develop in order to guide others. Wow. Uh, through Wind per- and Waves. Through Wind and Waves, uh, yeah. You know, I'm placed in this role of, you know, trying to form uh, students at the university yeah. and spiritual disciplines and uh, reading scripture. And so... Uh, I'm constantly concerned that uh, I actually be the kind of person that can do this role. So working on that. Beautifully put, beautifully yeah. put. And uh, s- second question, what's, 
just one, what's one among maybe, maybe I'm, I'm sure there are many, but what's one daily practice you do to draw closer to God? Yeah. Find meaning yeah. in your life. Yeah. Um, I carry a pocket New Testament with me and uh, I like to get up in the morning and pull that out. And uh, it's, it's a certain New Testament that's kind of divided into daily readings mm-hmm. in about three minutes a day. And uh, so that, that's usually my first devotional practice. And uh, that gives me some food for prayer. And then I go into prayer for, you know, 15 minutes or so to begin the day, come back to prayer later in the day. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, that's one devotional practice. And I really promote this. I learned it from you. (laughs) It's it's the New Testament you used to carry. Uh, same edition from Scepter Press. Uh, and I know you're familiar. And uh, I, I promote these and, and, and I take them with me to speaking events and sell them at men's rallies and at parish missions and stuff like that. Just to encourage everybody to carry New Testament. Pope Francis, you know, more than a dozen times uh, has, has encouraged in his public audiences, Christians, to carry a New Testament with them. And yeah. It's very important. He has a beautiful line, too, where he says that... Um, we need to read scripture. I don't know how he puts it, but it's, it might have been in like the joy of the gospel as encyclical on or, you know, the uh, evangelization. But, but basically he says we have to, when we read scripture, we have to listen to the voice of the master. Yeah. Right. That, <laughs> we, we, that's what we're listening. We're reading scripture, listening to the voice of the master teaching us. And, you know, l- last question. Uh, this is a, right, a theology show. So we're, we, the part of the principle of the show is that trying to think rightly about God is helpful. Yes. It helps us in a way to love him more and maybe, hurt ourselves less and hurt <laughs> others less by understanding who God is, right? And, and who we are. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's a belief that you held at some point, maybe about God that you discovered was false and you, what was a deeper understanding you came Yeah, to? yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up with this notion that if you followed the law of God, you would uh, be spared great sufferings. Wow. <laughs> And that's not the way things work. And uh-huh. uh, so when I, when I hit about, uh, you know, uh, about three years into marriage and uh, we had a baby on the way and I was unemployed and, uh, and, and suffering from like clinical depression and I'm like, uh, okay, what's going on here, Lord? You know, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't, mm-hmm. To what I can see, I haven't been committing sin and yet my life is falling apart. Yeah. And uh, through that crucible, you know, I came to understand redemptive suffering, that no, indeed, following the law of God doesn't excuse you from suffering, may lead you into worse sufferings, Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but that's okay. Uh, and there's meaning in that because we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And again, this is how our love is demonstrated and how our love is purified. So finding meaning in suffering um, was, was really key to me and eventually paved the way for me to come into the Catholic Church. Well, that's, that's, that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And uh, again, just uh, for our listeners, we have a, we're doing a series of uh, podcast episodes on uh, really trying to dis- understand and increase our devotion uh, to the Holy Eucharist. Uh, we've had uh, Dr. John Bergsma. Uh, for those who are interested in uh, reading some of his books, he has a book, The New Testament Basics for Catholics, um, kind of a, almost like a, you know, a, a kind of a little textbook of sorts, uh, but with lots of fun drawings in it as well. Yeah, uh, He has a kind of a popular book about his uh, understanding and his conversion, understanding scripture, stunned by scripture, how the Bible made me Catholic. And he has a huge, uh, probably weighs about four or five pounds, well, yeah. book on the all the books of the Old Testament and introduction to the Old Testament. So again, thank you, John, for being yeah, on our show. Absolutely, Michael. It's been great. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. 
We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.